Good morning. If you would, turn with me to 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. 1 John 2, chapter, or 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. If you would, uh, let's pray before we jump into this passage. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord God Almighty, we thank you for who you are, Lord. God, we thank you that you have pulled us out of the kingdom of this, where you've delivered us out of this worldly kingdom, Lord. <clears throat> and now we're a part of your kingdom, Lord. God, I pray that when the community of Tehachapi looks at our church, Lord, that they see a distinction in us as a church, Lord. That they see that we are separate of the world. We're in the world, Lord. We're engaging with the world, Lord, but we're not a part of this world. Our allegiance is with you, Lord. I pray that's true for our church, Lord. I pray that's true for us that are Christians in our individual lives, Lord. And I pray it's a testimony, Lord, for those that are still a part of this corrupt system of the world, Lord. In your son's name, amen. Do not love the world. Could you do me a favor? Uh, keep your finger here on 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, or put a bookmark there or something. And turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 14. This passage, as you're turning there, is actually uh, one of the, the most heartbreaking passages in all of Scripture. It's, you know, Paul kind of lays out his heart a few times throughout the epistles, but maybe no more, more than this passage where, John, where Paul is just writing from his heart to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4 here. Paul, at this point, is an old man. This is the last letter that he's written. This is probably the last scripture that was written by Paul, the very end of the last book. This is after all the suffering that he's gone through, a life dedicated to God, a life dedicated to the gospel, going out to the Gentiles, going out to the nations. And this is what he tells Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 14. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. Everyone deserted Paul. This may even include Luke, one of Paul's best friends, because earlier in this chapter, it, Paul says Luke was with him. And it says, all deserted me. Look what Paul says in the next line. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. 
The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amazing faith. And we see this throughout Paul's life. Just a trust in the Lord through the suffering and persecution that he's gone through. I didn't bring this passage up to talk about Paul, though. I really wanted to look at a different man. A man that deserted Paul. A man that at one time ministered with Paul, a man that probably was close friends with Paul, traveled with Paul, proclaimed the gospel with Paul, yet a man that ended up deserting Paul and the faith because of the seduction of the world. Look at verse 10. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. At one time, Demas was, was a friend with Paul, was a partner with Paul in ministry. Now he's deserted Paul. Why? He was in love with this present world. I've been hearing a lot lately from Christians, and I think appropriately so, uh, about persecution and how we kind of see it, it, it coming, right? It's coming. The first time in my life, I think within the last, I don't know how many years, five years or so, it's the first time in my life I really could see it coming. I've, I've heard about persecution is coming. I hear people say that in the church all the time, but I'm, I was always like, well, I don't, I don't see it coming. I can see it coming, right? I see the anger in our society. I see the hatred of the things of God. But I want to be honest. As a pastor, I, I'm not worried about persecution. When it comes to the church, I am not worried about persecution because persecution has always strengthened the church. And God will walk us through it. I mean, that's what Paul says in 2 Timothy 4, 17. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. Listen, what worries me when it comes to the church is not persecution. What worries me when it comes to the church in America is the seduction of the world. It's worldliness. C.J. Mahaney, in his book called Worldliness, and I recommend this book, uh, Worldliness, to you, especially if you're a parent of teenagers. This would be a great book to go through with your teenage uh, daughter or son, talking about the traps of the world and, and worldliness. He writes this in his book. Today, the greatest challenge facing America evangelicals is not persecution from the world, but seduction by the world. Last week, we looked at the, the two greatest commandments. Love God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And the second greatest commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. Simply, it's just love God and love others. Right? That sums up all the commandments of, of the Old Testament. And John, throughout this epistle of 1 John, is emphasizing these two commandments. Right? He's saying these two commandments characterize a true Christian, a person that's truly saved, a person that has been born again, has, has left the, the, the spiritual deadness that he was born into the first time, and God brings spiritual life to his soul, is a new man with new desires and new loves, a man that has a love for God and that has a love for others. John really emphasizes these commandments throughout the whole entire epistle of 1 John, so much so that the word love in the short epistle is used 51 times. 
It's why it's called sometimes the epistle of love, and John is called sometimes the apostle of love. John is commanding us over and over and over again. You might get bored of this command as we go through First John, but he's commanding us to love, right? to love God and to love others. These are signs of salvation. And he's not talking about perfection, but a desire for God and a desire to love those in the church. Out of the 51 times he uses the word love, there's only one time that John says, do not love. Do not love. And that's verse 15. Do not love the world. So the three points of the sermon today are the prohibition of worldly love, the substance of worldly love, and the futility of worldly love. So I want to start with the, the prohibition of worldly love. Turn back, if you're not there, to 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. I mean, that's as straightforward as it gets, right? And John, 1 John is a book that is very straightforward. But what's not straightforward, and I think it's something that we, we need to think about, is what does John mean by world? What does world mean? Do not love the world. This is extremely important because Christians are prone to make two mistakes. Right? We're prone to, to, to go to two extremes, especially in the understanding of, of world or worldliness when we come across passages like this. Either you go to the extreme of the legalist, Right, who says everything in our culture and society is from the devil and therefore is worldly. We should have nothing or little to do with anything in this world. That's one extreme. The other extreme is antinomialism, which is a very fancy word. Right, It, it just means against the law. If you, if you struggle with that, it's just anti is against, and namos in Greek is law. It's against law. It's the opposite. Just think of the opposite of legalism, and that's what this is. They say something like this, it's, it's hard to define worldly. Therefore, we should make no or very little restrictions when it comes to the word world. We, should re, we shouldn't re, uh, restrict our Christian freedoms or anyone else's Christian freedoms. Both these extremes are errors. Therefore, it's important to define world and worldliness to know exactly what John means when he says, do not love the world. So what does the word world mean? Well, we've already established that the word world, cosmos, is a generic expression, meaning it's referring to something that's all over the earth. And I think it's very helpful, since it's a generic expression, to start with saying or looking at what the word world doesn't mean. What the word world doesn't mean. Right? Using scripture to tell us what the word world doesn't mean in verse 15. And so I, I kind of went through um, some thoughts. I, there's more than four things, but I have four things that world can't mean because the Bible has specifically told us to love these things. So the first thing the world can't mean is that John is not talking about humanity. When he says, do not love the world, he's not talking about humans. Why? 
Well, it should be obvious. We're called to love humans, right? We're called to love people. Jesus commanded us to love your neighbor as yourself. This epistle is commanding us to love humans, right? Those especially within the church. 1 John 4, 7 says, Beloved, let us love one another. So when John says world, it's not, it doesn't mean humans. Second, the word world in verse 15 can't mean the physical world or the created order. Right from the beginning, God said that the physical world is good. Genesis 1, 31, And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. The physical world, listen, this is important, the physical world existed before the fall. It existed before sin. It wasn't brought into being because of sin. Remember, that's what the Gnostics taught. That's what the Gnostics thought. This is who John is, is, is writing against. They claim that the physical world is evil. And John's writing against this, and that's why in 1 John chapter 1, verse 1, it says, That which was from the beginning, this is Jesus, which we have heard, which we have seen with our own eyes, which we have looked upon, which we have touched. Jesus was physical. Or 1 John 4, verse 2, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. In other words, Jesus was physical. Therefore, the physical world is not evil, but good. And this really fits biblical theology. Biblical theology is a term meaning the, the whole scriptures, right? The meta narrative of scriptures, all the scriptures put together. This fits what scripture says. Psalm 19, verse 1 says this the heavens, right? This is, it's referring to the physical world. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the skies above proclaim his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. The created world, the physical world, reveals who God is. It pours out speech. It reveals knowledge. It reveals things about God. I have a question. I mean, have you ever wondered? I wonder about weird things, so maybe you've not wondered this. Have you ever wondered why so many people go to the Grand Canyon? Let me just think about that. Last time I went, I, I heard so many different languages as we were walking around, meaning people from all over the world are coming to see a big hole in the ground. All right, let me tell you why, why they don't come. Right? People don't go to the Grand Canyon to build self-esteem. Think about that. When you stand on the lip of the Grand Canyon, you don't think, I am so big. You don't think, I am so amazing. You don't think, hey, this is all about me. People don't go to build self-esteem. Listen, people go to forget themselves. To get lost in the glory that's being revealed by this big hole in the ground. The Grand Canyon reveals the glory of God. It reveals God to us that, that whoever made this hole is big. Right? Whoever made this hole is powerful and glorious. The physical world's not evil. It reveals God to us. 
Therefore, when John says, do not love the world, he's not specifically talking about the physical world. Third, John's also not talking about the blessings that come with modern society. Modern conveniences, modern medicine, modern technology, scientific advances are not evil within themselves. They are blessings from God. It's God's common grace towards mankind. I mean, think about this. Aren't you thankful for refrigeration? I mean, think about that for a second. When we didn't have refrigeration, I mean, think of the humans before our time that didn't have refrigeration, how hard life would be. Light bulbs, transportation like cars, airplanes, modern medicine. I, you know, I've been at the church long enough. Every time, you know, physical ailments come or, or some kind of disease, um, it gets sent to the prayer request. At some point, it usually hear about it. And there are so many people that say, hey, could you pray for this? I just don't want everyone else to know. And so, so the pastors kind of have this inside track of just hearing. I'll tell you what, when I hear the word cancer, I do not think death. I don't think death anymore. There was a time in our, in our culture where you hear cancer and you think death. Not anymore. I hear that all the time, and, and, and through modern medicine, what we can do, it's amazing. That's a blessing from God. Fourth, this might make some controversy, but John is also not talking about social structures. That includes government. Can you imagine, can you imagine what it would be like without government before you start cheering, right, some of you? Just think what it would be like with no police, no paramedics, no firemen. Paul tells us in in the book of Romans that government is a grace from God. It's a gift to us. Romans 13 verse 1 says this, "Let Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been um, instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. And verse 6 says this, For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. If you were or if you are a police officer or a CEO or a fireman, thank you. Thank you. You are a gift from God. Social structures, including government, are ordained by God for our good. That means families, marriages, vocations, government, communities, the church. Ordained by God for our good. Therefore, John is not specifically talking about them. World doesn't mean humans. It doesn't mean the physical created order. It doesn't mean governments, social structure. It doesn't mean community. It doesn't mean modern science. It doesn't mean modern technology. Then what does the word world mean in verse 15 when John says, do not love the world? Well, I've studied this in every theologian. It's rare when every theologian agrees, and just about every theologian I've read agrees Um, and says something similar to this, that verse 15, when when John says world, he's talking about the invisible spiritual system of evil that is under the authority of the evil one. 
In other words, it's philosophies, it's teachings, it's ideas, it's cultures, it's attitudes, it's thoughts, it's cravings, it's lusts, it's desires, it's activities that are in opposition of God. Listen, government, marriage, family, technology, medicine, companies, iPhones, they're not evil within themselves. It's a worldly system that corrupts them all. The world is an evil system of a fallen world that is totally under the grips of the devil. Therefore, being in love with the world is a sin, is the sin of allowing your appetites, ambitions, desires, conduct be shaped by by earthly values. See, Jamie Haney writes in that book, Worldliness, that it's a love for the falling world. Right? It's not a, a love for things in the world. I love the Grand Canyon. I love basketball, especially NBA basketball. I love music. I love bike riding. I love my wife and my family, and obviously not all at the same level. Worldliness is a love for this fallen world. Mahaney clarifies, it's, it's loving the values and pursuits of the world that stand in opposition of God. And this type of love, love has no place in the Christian's walk. 1 John 2.15 says this, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of God, or the love of the Father is not in him. Right? The kingdom of the world, in other words, and the kingdom of God are inherently incompatible. Listen to what John says. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. You can't love the world and love God, in other words. James 4.4 4 says something very similar. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enemy with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God can't love the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of God because they're in opposition of each other. How are they in opposition? Well, that gets us to our second point this morning, the substance of worldly love. The substance of worldly love. Look at verse 16. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. When I hear worldliness, when I first started coming to this passage, and I was thinking, okay, John's talking about worldliness here and not loving the world, the first thing I think of is list, right? Is it just me? I just started thinking of lists of things that are worldly. And if you struggle with legalism this morning, you might be asking, Nathan, where is the list? <laughs> I mean, you told us, you've given us a, a list of what the world isn't. What about a list of what the world is? What about like rated R movies or styles of dress or types of music like rap and, and rock or video games or, or music videos or MTV, hairstyles, TV shows, dancing, drinking, smoking, Starbucks? <laughs> that, that was a joke. Where's the list of worldly things? I have a funny kind of sad story about making worldly lists. I played uh, college basketball 
And uh, there was this, this college we would play against that was um, part of a, a fundamentalist church, and this church was huge, and this college was part of this church. And the basketball team called beforehand and asked us if we wouldn't play uh, rap before our, our warm-ups, for our warm-ups when they come, because they're bringing a bunch of kids from their college, and their players are going to be there, and they don't want to hear rap. We were a Christian college, too, so the rap we played was Christian rap, or just beats that sounded rapish, right? And, and we got the phone call, and we're like, no, we're playing, playing our rap, right? Just probably wasn't a good attitude within itself. But I remember playing this team, and their coach, halfway through the game, got kicked out with arguing with the refs. And the rules in basketball in high school and college, at least they were, is if you get kicked out of a game for getting technical fouls and arguing, you have to leave the gym. Like, you can't stay. You have to get out of there. This guy refused to leave. Remember, he walked over to the water jug, got some water, sat there. The rest were like, hey, you have to leave. And he's like, I'm getting a drink. Starts arguing with them again. I've never seen this. And all the, 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 I played at a high school that wasn't a Christian high school, so we played all the different high schools. Played for a college. We played all secular college. I've never seen a coach stay there to the point where the ref was just about ready to forfeit the game. We were halfway through this game, and we're like, we're not going to play the rest of the game? Never seen this. Now, I was talking to one of the players, and I, you know, because this is going on, so we have time to just sit there and talk. And I was thinking, man, this coach is going to get fired. This, this church is not going to put up with this. And I asked the player, and the player said, oh, no, this happens all the time. And I asked her, well, what did your church think about this then? And he said, well, he's one of the pastors at our church. <laughs> Listen, there's obviously things in this world that are worldly, and they're things that we should avoid. But loving this world or not loving this world is not making a list. It's not just making a list. It's not just making a list of worldly things and saying, hey, I'm going to avoid those things. Not loving this world begins with the heart. And John even takes it a step deeper in this passage. He's not making a list. He takes it a step deeper than that. He takes it to the heart level. And because worldliness is a heart issue, listen, it means worldliness can corrupt anything. It's not just rated R movies. It's rated G movies. The world can corrupt anything. It can corrupt good things like creation, like government, like technology, like modern medicine, because human hearts are involved in those things. The world can corrupt Christian things, like parenting. Listen, if you're prideful in your parenting as a Christian, one of the things that John says here is the pride of life. Your parenting, your, your Christian parenting, not only can crush your kid if you're prideful about it, but can be worldly. Like keeping the rules. Keeping God's commandments, right? That's a good thing. But if it becomes a source of pride, like ministering, even evangelism, if you think you're better than everyone else because you evangelize more than everyone else, it's a source of pride. Like pastoring. I, I tell you, daily, daily I struggle with my motivation. Visiting someone in the hospital, am I doing this because I love that person? Because I want to glorify God? 
Am I studying hard each week because I want to glorify God or, or do I want to look good when I get up here? Look what John says in verse 16. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Right? Sin starts within. And the worldly system, the, the system that fills the earth, that's what Ephesians 2 says. It's like air. Like air, how it fills the earth. The worldly system fills the earth, and it's everywhere. And it's trying to entice the sinfulness that's within our hearts. And there's three main avenues that the world is enticing our hearts. The first one is the desires of the flesh. In the NASB, it says the lust of the flesh. Just because that word lust there, the, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes, it doesn't just mean sexual sins. It means sexual sins, but it doesn't just mean sexual sins. Like Paul, Paul makes a list of the flesh in, in Galatians 5.19. He says this, Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, so that's in there. Impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalry, dissension, division, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. It's more than sexual sins. The desire, the lust of the flesh are all desires centered in your sinful nature without regard to the will of God. The New Living Translation says, a craving for physical pleasures. William Barclay writes, to be subject to the flesh desire is to judge everything by purely material standards. It is not to live a life dominated, or it, 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 it is to live a life dominated by the senses. It is to be gluttonous in food, overindulgent in luxury, slavish in pleasure, lax in morals, selfish in the use of possessions. The flesh's desire disregards the commandments of God, the judgments of God, the standards of God, and the very existence of God. The desires of the flesh, but also the desire of the eyes. Again, the NSB says the lust of the eyes. Right, this is another avenue that the world is trying to entice our hearts. Simply, it's lusting after things with, with your eyes. It's coveting with your eyes. And we see this throughout Scripture. David, 2 Samuel eleven two 2 says this, It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of his king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And it's not just sexual sins. Achan in the book of Joshua, Achan, or Joshua chapter 7, verse 20 says this, And Achan answered Joshua, Truly I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and this is what I did. First three words, when I saw, when I saw among the spoils a beautiful coat from Shinar and 200 shackles of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shackles, then I coveted, then I took them. Lot's wife, Genesis 20 verse 20, 20 or Genesis chapter 19 verse 26, but Lot's wife behind him looked back. In other words, she looked at the world that they were leaving, the worldliness, and she, she coveted it, looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. Your eyes, just like your mouth, are connected to your heart. And they can cultivate sinful cravings 
that are already in there from the heart, dissatisfaction, covetousness, idolatry, the lust of the eyes, and not just that, the pride of life. Right? Pride is at the root of all sins. It's what makes us want to gratify our flesh. Right? It makes us want, want to, to go after our, our, our physical pleasures, my flesh needs. It's what makes us covet with the eyes. I deserve, I should have. Pride seeks to elevate self above everyone else, self above others, and self above God. Through pride, humanity rebels against God, attempts to dethrone God, and replace God with ourselves. When you add all three of these together, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, worldliness can be simply defined as self-worship. Self-worship. It's why anything, anything in this world can become worldly. So we can try to glorify ourselves with almost anything. <laughs> we can be prideful of anything. The worldly system that is around us is trying to entice us to love ourselves over and against the love of God and the love of others. That's why it fits First John so well, right? John just got done saying, love God and love others. And now he's saying, be careful to not do the opposite. That's what the world is trying to get you to do. And that's why it's an opposition of the kingdom of God. It's the exact opposite of what we're called to do as Christians. Matthew 16, 24 says this, Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, in other words, if you want to be a Christian, you want to be a follower of me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Listen, Satan's game plan is to tempt us to worship ourselves, to put ourselves first instead of worshiping God and putting him first. And he does this through three avenues, right? The desire of the flesh, the desire of the eyes, and the pride of life. Let me show you this is, this is Satan's game plan because he's been doing it since the beginning. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 3. I know we, we go to this portion of Scripture a lot, but it's so foundational to all of the rest of Scripture. Genesis chapter 3. Verse 1 says this, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Verse 2, And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the tree in the garden, trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. What Satan tempting Eve here? Well, he's simply tempting Eve to put herself in front of God. Worship yourself, don't worship God. God's holding back. He doesn't love you. Eat eat the fruit. Look at verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, what's that? The lust of the flesh. My flesh wants to eat that. 
and that it was delight to the eyes. What's that? Lust of the eyes. And that the tree was, was to be desired to make one wise. What's that? Pride of life. To make one as smart as God. She took it. She took of its fruit and ate. And the devil was enticing Eve with the lust of her flesh, right? Good for food. The lust of her eyes, the lighting to the eyes, and the pride of life desired to make one wise. It's a devil's strategy. And we see in other places in the scripture. Turn with me to Luke chapter 4, verse 1. Luke chapter 4, verse 1. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. Apparently, God the Father has asked Jesus to fast, to wait for him to feed Jesus. It's been 40 days of of fasting and waiting. And we have to remember, Jesus was 100% human. So when it says he was hungry, it means he was starving. His body, his flesh was screaming out for food. And he was called to wait for God. And look at verse 3. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. What's the devil trying to appeal to? Desires of the flesh. You're starving, Jesus. Don't wait for your father. You can turn these stones to bread easily. You're God. Look at verse 5. And the devil took him up and showed him. Those two words. Showed him. All the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. What's the devil appealing to? Desire of the eyes. He showed him all the kingdoms. And said, worship me and I'll give it to you. Worship me and I'll give them to you. Look at verse 9. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. What's he appealing to? Pride of life. If you are the Son of God, right? If you truly are this, this Son of God, throw yourself off because angels will surely save you before you hit the ground. Prove your value. To everyone. It's the same tactics as Genesis 3. There's only one difference. Jesus didn't sin. He didn't sin by appealing to Scripture and by trusting God. And I want you to think about this. I think it's extremely important when we think about worldliness. What happens at the end of Genesis 3? It ends in destruction, right? There's shame and guilt that Adam and Eve are feeling. There's a separation from God. There's this getting kicked out of the garden. I always see pictures of Adam and Eve walking away from the garden with their heads down because they're in shame. And not only that, think about this. One generation, in one chapter, Eve's son kills her other son. Imagine the pain there is there. Your son is a murderer, and your other son is dead. Destruction, pain, and suffering. Listen, that's what the love of the world brings. 
you follow the worldly system, if you indulge in the desires of the flesh, in the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, if you worship yourself over God, it will bring destruction. It will bring destruction. But if you trust God and worship him and obey God like Jesus did, even when it's hard, even when it costs, Remember, Jesus was starving. It was costing him. He was 100% human. His flesh was screaming out for food. And three temptations, through it all, he trusts his father. My father will provide. My father will provide. And there's this verse that we skip over, at least I skip over, that's just amazing. And it's in Matthew chapter 4, verse 11. It says this, Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. God provided in a miraculous way. I just picture this is not biblical. This is my own crazy imagination. But I picture Jesus like in a lounge chair with like angels with big fans <laughs> or maybe with our wings or something, giving him grapes. Listen, when you trust God, when you put God at the center of your life, no matter what the cost, the end, the end is always joy. The end is life. It's life. That's what Jesus said in, in Matthew 16, verse 24. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, or you want to be a Christian, come after me. Let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. You know what that is? That's death. Sacrifice his life for me. You want to be a follower? Sacrifice your life for me. Whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, puts me above everything else, will find it. You will find life. You will find joy. And then he says this in verse 26. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? That leads to our third point this morning. The futility of worldly love. Look at 1 John chapter 2, verse 17, if you're not there. 1 John chapter 2, verse 17. This is what John says, inspired by God. And the world is passing away along with its desires. It's the same thing John, or this, John is saying the same thing Jesus said in, in Matthew 16. It's foolish to pursue, pursue this world and its desires because it's all temporary. It's all temporary. I mean, think about it, the desires of the flesh, right? The lust of the flesh, the pleasure that sin brings. And we need to be honest with our kids. Sin brings pleasure, fleeting, temporary pleasure. And it always ends in destruction. It's temporary. It, it doesn't last at all. The desires of the eye, the things that we cover after. Just think of things that we can cover. I just think of a car, right? It'll be destroyed. <laughs> and it's gonna be it's gonna it's gonna rust. You might die before it does, but it's gonna be destroyed. And if you do get it, right, you're covering after a car, you do get it, you'll be bored of it. It won't take long. And we learned that as a young kid. The toy is waiting for Christmas. The toy comes, and I'm bored by the afternoon. The pride of life, whatever you're prideful about, 
won't matter when you die. It won't matter when you die. No one is going to care that I was a good basketball player. No one cares that I'm a good basketball player now. <laughs> this is a sobering thought. And if you, if you find pride in parenting, this is a sobering thought. Within three generations, our grandkids probably won't even know our names. It's fleeting. It's vanity. It's chasing after the wind. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Listen, if you are saved this morning, our relationship with God is eternal. It's the only thing. It's the only thing that will last forever. You know, one of the things that just amazes me about Scripture, it's like the reason I know, more than anything else, and I love apologetics, I have all these arguments for, for the reliability of Scripture and all that, that and it's important, but, but the reason I know it's from God is I don't get bored of it. I haven't got bored of it. I have a, a, a biblical studies bachelor's degree, right? Four years studying scripture. I have a, a pretty much a biblical studies master's degree, an MDiv, four more years of studying scripture. And, and I'm excited to get, get to work Monday to study scripture again. I don't get bored of it. I believe that's just a glimpse of what heaven's going to be like. Never getting bored of studying and, and learning about God. Falling more and more in love with God for eternity. Never getting to the end of God because he's eternal. I want to end with this this morning. That thought of eternity, right? that thought of eternal joy, is actually what brought me back to the Lord in college. After high school, Actually, during high school, I was just terrified of my parents, um, and particularly my dad. <laughs> after high school, though, I was, I was enticed by the world, right? The chased after worldly pleasures. I felt deeply in love with the world. The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life. Right? I was fully all about worshiping myself. By the time I got to my senior year of college, I was miserable. Just miserable. And I knew in my heart there was something more meaningful out there. Honestly, that misery is what drove me back to God. It's what drove me back to the church, to this church in particular, actually. I knew I'd find truth here. I just grew up in it. I was seeking joy at that point, and I, I learned that you can only find true, lasting joy in a relationship with God. It's the only place you're going to find true, lasting joy. Listen, do not love the world or the things in the world. If you're miserable this morning because you're trapped in this worldly system, seeking for joy and happiness and fleshly pleasures in worldly pursuits and selfish living, repent. Repent, run away from it, run away from this world, and turn and run to God. And then put your faith in Jesus. Listen, Jesus came, he died on the cross for our sins, so that our sins would be forgiven. He was raised from the dead, and he sits at the right hand of the Father. And all those that put their faith in him, their, your, your sins will be forgiven. You'll spend eternity with Jesus. Put your faith in Jesus and find everlasting joy. Let's pray.
Dear Heavenly Father, God, Lord, I thank you. I thank you, Lord, for the blessings of the world. No, not the worldliness, Lord, but the creative order from human beings, Lord, my family. God, I thank you for the Grand Canyon. Lord, I thank you that we can go there and get lost in the glory of the Grand Canyon, knowing that that glory just reflects your glory, that, that a God that made that by speaking is huge and awesome and glorious, and that forgetting myself is where I actually find myself and find true joy. God, Satan has fooled us all in America. Satan has said that the problem that we have is that we don't have high enough self-esteem, that we need to make much of ourselves to find joy, and we are miserable. God, help us as a nation, as people, Lord, to turn back to you and find true joy. Help us as a church, Lord. I pray for protection for each person in this church, Lord. Protection from the seduction of the world. For our our little kids, Lord, from our high schoolers that that are going to be tempted, Lord. Protect them. Help us as adults that that, that know you well, Lord. Help us to live in a way that shows them that, that joy is only found in our relationship with you. Protect our church, Lord, from worldliness. Lord, help us to be, be a light to this world. Help us to, to be separate from this world. And again, in the world, Lord, but separate from worldliness. That people see Country Oaks and go, that's different. What do they have that I don't? That we reflect God and that we look different than this world. Help that to be true about us, Lord. I thank you, Lord, for who you are, Lord. Be with us. Be with us as a church. Be with us as individuals. Help us to glorify your Son. In your Son's name, amen.